Good morning. This week we are discussing Parshas Ekev, as well as the subject of today. Today is the 15th day in Av, also known as Tuba Av, the 15th of Av. Title for today's class is Navigating Shaduchim, and we will see shortly the connections between Tuba Av and our Parsha. This month, the month of Av, is anonymously sponsored in Hakara Satov to Rabbi Akiva and the Zwaik families for their teaching and sharing Torah. May all our learning be a merit for all our children and grandchildren to find their Shaduchim with clarity and speedily and abundant Shalom Bayis, as well as a Rafu Shalema for all in need. Uh, to the anonymous sponsor, of course, we thank you. And please note that even though we're taking off next week, which would be the last week of this month sponsorship, we will continue, God willing, um, to, you know, make up that week for you in the future. And of course, um, we appreciate so much your participation in the sponsorship, and we wish bracha and hatzlacha to everything that you're davening for, for your family, and for Klal Yisrael. <clears throat> so first, a little bit of a background on the 15th day of Av. What I'm reading to you now is going to come, it does come, I should say, from Midrash Rabbah in Eicha. So it's Eicha Rabbah. It's Pesichta number 33. So it's in the beginning section of the Midrash Rabbah in Eicha, in case anybody wants to look that up. You should know that part of what I'm quoting is the Gemara in Tanis, as well as the Gemara in Bava Basra as well. Uh, Bava Basra is 121a and uh, Tainis, I think, is uh, in the 30s. Okay, so the connection to the book of Eicha is that the harp is for mourning, and my flute is for the voice of weepers, which is actually a sentence from Eo, but that's just um, the, uh, the opening of the Midrash, where it's pointing out that in the time of Eicha, of course, was a time for desperate mourning, but we are going to now talk about the happiest days of the Jewish calendar. This was taught by Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel that there were no days as joyous for the Jewish people as the 15th of Av and Yom Kippur, on which the daughters of Yerushalayim would go out in white borrowed garments so as not to embarrass anyone who did not have clothing. And of course, all the garments also became immersed. They would put them into a mikvah in case they had any uncleanliness. And the women would put on these, so to speak, pure garments. They would go out into the vineyards and they would dance. And it is taught that anyone who did not have a wife would turn there and what would they say? Young man, lift your eyes and see what you are choosing for yourself. Do not look at beauty, look at lineage. And there are more sentences to this effect, but then the Midrash asks, so these two days, Yom Kippur and Tuba'av, are the days when this dancing in the new garments would happen, and people who were looking for a wife would go and look at the pedigree, the lineage of the girls. But the Midrash asks, granted that Yom Kippur is a day of pardon and forgiveness for the Jewish people, because it is the day on which the last, meaning the later tablets, the second tablets were given. However, what is the significance of the 15th of Av? So just bear in mind as we're reading this and learning this, that we're comparing today in its happiness, today, the 15th 
of Av, we're comparing this day to Yom Kippur, which is obviously a most incredible day for the Jewish people. So there are several reasons that the Midrash relates why the 15th of Av is significant, presented by different rabbis. I'm gonna give you the outline. One opinion, which is Rabbi Yaakov Baracha, says that <clears throat> it was a time to chop the wood for the altar. And so the wood that was used to burn on the altar was at this time. And that's a very significant day. Some say actually that it was a time when they stopped chopping the wood for the altar and then they could study Torah. So there's a little bit of different versions on that. Now, another opinion, Rabbi Acha Bar Kahana says, in the name of Uva, in the name of Yehuda Hanasi, that this was the day that the prophet Hosea ben Ela canceled the guards that Yeravam ben Nevat had set up as a roadblock for the Jewish people not to be able to go to the Holy Temple, not to be able to be Ola Regal. So the first king outside of the tribe of Yehuda named Yeravam ben Nevat, when he became king, he eventually set up these guards to prevent Jewish people from traveling to the Beis HaMikdash. He wanted allegiance to be given to him and not to the king of Yehuda, and that lasted for a long time. And it was this day that Hosea canceled those centuries. And this was a very happy day when now the Jewish people from all over the land of Israel had appropriate access to the Holy Temple. So that's another auspicious reason for this being a significant day. Rabbi Shmuel bar Nachmani said, in the name of Rabbi Shmuel bar Yitzchak, that this day, the 15th of Al, was a day when the tribes were permitted to marry into other tribes. There had been a ban that was put on the Jewish people in the time of the daughters of Tzalafad, that there was no inter-tribal marriages that were allowed to happen in order to prevent the inheritance from one tribe going to the next tribe. Because the laws of the daughters of Tzalafad said that if there are only girls, then the girls inherit from their father. And when the girl would marry someone from a different tribe, then the land would be bequeathed to the next tribe, as opposed to the tribe of the father of the girls. And so therefore, in that first generation, when the daughters of Tzalafad entered, there were no intertribal marriages allowed in order to maintain the correct boundaries for the inheritance of the land of Israel per each tribe. But on the 15th of Av, at a certain point, this ban became lifted, and now all the tribes were able to marry one another. That's another reason for this tremendously happy day of Tuba Av. Now, the more famous reason is that this is from Rav Matana, that the 15th of Av represented the date on which all the people who were meant to pass away in the desert finished dying. There were approximately 15,000 people every Tisha B'Av that would die. If you uh, multiply 15 times 40, you get 600,000. And that was the number of Jews that were destined to die in the desert because of the sin of the spies. Every Tisha B'Av, they would go and dig graves at Moshe's behest. They would lie down in the graves and the people that would arise would be those that would be living. The people 
remaining in the graves died. In the last year, when they were expecting to again have more people dying, they stopped dying. Everybody got up the next morning. They thought maybe they had miscalculated until the 15th of Ab, where there's a new moon. And so they know that it definitely, it, not a new moon, but a full moon. And they knew at that point uh, that it was definitely true that the decree was over. And so therefore the 15th of Av was the last day where they became aware that the decree of the generation of the desert finished dying. That was another reason for tremendous celebration. And then the Midrash of course concludes that despite all these happy days, because of the iniquities of the Jewish people, again, we were beset with the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash on two separate occasions. And that's what the sentence that we began with, that the flute is from, for the voice of the weepers, etc. All that is how we were exiled. And that's why it's the opening in the, in the Book of Lamentations in the Pesichta, as we mentioned. So the bottom line is this. We have all different reasons why Tuba Av is a significant day. The tribes were allowed to marry with each other. The roadblocks that were set up by Yeruvim to prevent passage to the Holy Temple was, you know, those roadblocks were removed. We have that the generation of the flood, uh, I'm sorry, of the desert stopped dying. Uh, we have also the uh, idea that um, the wood chopping for the base of Mikdash was concluded or started either way. We have all these different reasons why the 15th day of Av is a special day. But the obvious question is, does it really compare to Yom Kippur? That because Yom Kippur is a, a tremendously special day that Hashem gave us the second Luchos, and he let us know that we were kind of uh, forgiven for the sin of the golden calf. Does that really compare it to the happy occasions of Tuba'av? So we'll go into that question a little bit further. So what is the connection between Parshas Ekev and Tuba'av? Well, first and foremost, is that the Shabbos before is generally speaking Parshas Nachamu, right? It's always Parshas Nachamu Ba'as Hanan. And depending on when Tisha falls out, the 15th day of Av is often like it is this year, a prelude to Parshas Ekev. So that's number one, because we have Tisha B'Av, Shabbos Nachamu, and then Parshas Ekev. So it's always around the 15th day of Av. But in addition to that is the fact that the Torah very clearly repeats the sin of the golden calf and the giving of the second tablets in Parshas Ekev. So therefore we have the linkage between Yom Kippur and Tuba'av in our Parsha, because we're mentioning both the sin of the golden calf, the giving of the Luchos, and also the sin of the spies. So all of this is obviously not a coincidence. So obviously the question comes to us is what is the significance of Parshas Ekev and how it relates to these major events? What is the theme, if you will, of Parshas Ekev that allows all of this to coalesce that we can hopefully come to some kind of a good understanding of the significance of these two days? So as the title of today's class speaks, we're also focusing on navigating Shaduchim. What does all of this really have to do with Shaduchim? In other words, what is Yom Kippur, Tisha B'Av, Tuba Av? How does this all then lead to the idea that on these two days, 
anyone who needed a shidduch would, you know, go into the fields and look for matches. So in order to understand all of this, we need to do a brief recap like an, of the essential points that Moshe Rabbeinu rebukes us in our parsha, And then after this recap, we'll have four specific questions and present our idea. So if you look in Parak S, in Parshas Ekev, which is basically towards the middle of the parsha, the Torah describes that Moshe Rabbeinu is reminding the Jewish people that they're entering a land where there are mighty giants and that you should know that Hashem, who is a God of fire, he will go past before the Jewish people and you will quickly destroy the enemies of the land. Chapter nine, sentence four says, do not say in your heart when Hashem casts all these nations aside that it is in my righteousness that Hashem brought me to inherit this land, and it is the wickedness of these nations that Hashem is removing them from in front of you, says sentence five, it is not because of your righteousness that Hashem is bringing you to inherit their lands, rather it is because of the wickedness of these nations that Hashem is driving them out in front of you, and in order that Hashem should fulfill that which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. And you should know that it is not because of your righteousness. In sentence six, the Torah repeats, Hashem is giving you this good land to inherit it because you are a stiff-necked people. Remember all those times that you got Hashem angry in the desert from the day that you left Egypt until your arrival here 40 years later. You were rebellious with Hashem this entire 40 years. In Chorev, which is Sinai, you angered Hashem and Hashem became very angry at you. And then Moshe repeats going up to the mountain and the sin of the golden calf and Hashem threatened to destroy them. And Moshe fell and prayed for them. And Moshe was very himself, Moshe was very afraid of the anger and the fierceness of the, of the heat, so to speak, of Hashem that he was wanting to destroy you and even Aharon. And because of your sin of the golden calf, Moshe Rabbeinu did the whole process of grinding it to dust. And then other places you had Hashem uh, angered uh, in Tad Eira, where there was a fire and the burying of the people by the slav when you desired the meat. And of course, the sin of the 10 spies. Says Moshe, you rebelled and you did not have emuna, and you did not listen to his voice and listen to this one sentence. This is chapter 9, sentence 24. You were rebellious with Hashem from the day that I know you. That's what Moshe Rabbeinu says. But Moshe Rabbeinu Davins, Hashem forgives us. And then guess what? Hashem decides to give us the second set of tablets. And he gives us the second set of tablets. And Moshe Rabbeinu points out that, in fact, the tribe of Levi actually never rebelled against Hashem. And at that time, Hashem set aside the tribe of Levi. And that's why the tribe of Levi does not inherit the land of Israel with everyone else. Instead, Hashem is his inheritance. That's chapter 10, sentence 9. And basically, Hashem says, listen, despite the sin of the golden calf, go ahead, take these people into the land of Israel. So the obvious question for us is, if in fact, this is the rebelliousness of the Jewish people, why did Hashem get himself involved 
in this situation to be stuck with us, right? Forgetting about the fact that Hashem knows the future, Hashem swore. Anytime a person swears something for posterity, it begs the question, what if it goes wrong, right? If, if at the end of the day, the Jewish people were rebellious for all these 40 years, and of course, we know our history since then as well, also full of much you know, destruction, exile because of our sins, why did Hashem get involved in this kind of a, of a situation? So the question is, is there any way to encapsulate why we are so stubborn and stiff-necked and how to actually change and come to have awe for Hashem? Because the next chapter in our parsha says, you know what? Hashem is willing to move forward with you, but you need to have awe of Hashem. That's all he asks from you. Okay, so why are we so stiff-necked and how do we come to have the proper awe of Hashem? Question number two, why in fact does Hashem not reject us because of our incessant stubbornness. Or another way to ask the question is why did Hashem get involved with us in an inextricable fashion whereby he swore to the forefathers that we would be the chosen people and that he would always have a relationship with us. Why does Hashem do that? Question number three, what is the specific greatness of Hashem that the Torah here describes that Hashem cares for the widow and the orphan plus Hashem takes care of the convert by giving him clothing and food. That's chapters 10, sentence 18. And then finally, as we began with, why is Tuba Av such a happy day, right? And does it really compare, does Tuba Av really compare, even with all the above mentioned reasons, to Yom Kippur? So I would like to suggest what I think might start off sounding like a simple idea, but I think we perhaps often underestimate the value of this idea. What does it mean when Moshe Rabbeinu says, you are a stiff-necked people, rebellious from the day that I know you? What is that trying to describe about the Jewish people? And if that's so, why does Hashem stick with us? So what I'd like to suggest is that we have, unfortunately, I think, an underestimated value of the qualities of the Jewish people. The fact that we have forefathers, the fact that Hashem desired our forefathers and he chose them and the children that come from them means that as far as essential quality, we, the Jewish people, have all the right qualities. We are not people that are ever ever able to be counted out because we don't have the qualities or what it takes to be the nation of Hashem. We always have and own the correct characteristics and in other words, potential to be Hashem's people. Well, what about the fact that we are stiff-necked and we are constantly rebellious? Well, the answer that I'm suggesting to that is that being stiff-necked and stubborn speaks to our attitude and not to our quality of being this. And the therefore is that our main issue as a people for our incessant rebelliousness is our attitude of being stiff-necked, which means unwillingness to change and learn, which of course is an attitude of arrogance and entitlement. And that itself 
breeds an attitude of negativity. As we know, people who refuse to change or are arrogant or feel entitled don't look to themselves to change who they are. Instead, they look to change how they're being treated externally by other people, or in this case, Hashem. That is what Moshe Rabbeinu is telling us as a nation. Our problem is not quality. Our problem is our approach, our mindset, the negativity that we have, the rebelliousness, which comes from arrogance. That's where our problem lies. And in fact, we can really learn that from the Haftorah of Chazon, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, Parashas Tvarim, where we have a sentence where it says, Let's go and have a debate, or so to speak, a conversation, says Hashem. It's very interesting to look at the Rishonim on that Pasuk, but essentially what Hashem is saying, listen, let's go and discuss what the problems are. That's what Hashem is, uh, that's what the prophet Yeshaya tells us uh, that Hashem is telling us to do. And that sentence concludes with, if your sins will be like, like wool, or I'm sorry, like scarlet, like crimson wool, that we come white as snow. If they're red, 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 like this very dark red, they will be like white wool. That's very interesting because it doesn't talk about repentance. Uh, this, by the way, is Yeshaya chapter one, sentence 18, right? That means that Hashem is saying, if all we do is look at the facts, the truth will become clear. The problem is that we refuse to look at the facts. So the truth doesn't become clear, but as soon as the truth becomes clear, we have immediate forgiveness because change is imminent. And that is the key. So in order to stop being a rebellious people, what we need to do is shift the attitude from arrogance and entitlement to one of seeking truth and willingness to change. And therefore, says Moshe Rabbeinu, despite everything that we did wrong, and you could take a look at Rashi um, in, in Akev chapter 10, sentence 11, even though you strayed from after him and you committed the sin of the golden calf, Hashem told me to take you and guide you to Eretz Yisrael. Why is that? Because despite this terrible approach of rebelliousness and arrogance and negativity, we are always redeemable. We just need to change our attitude. That is the key. And therefore, the rebuke of Moshe Rabbeinu is one where he explains to us that what's wrong with us is not our essence, but our approach. Now, there's an amazing outcome from this concept. And this is something that I think, again, we kind of know, but very rarely employ. And it's proven by these teachings of Yom Kippur and Tuba. If we read the Midrash carefully, the Gemara, et cetera, carefully, we discover that the reason that Yom Kippur is a day of forgiveness is not because it started off being a day of forgiveness. It's because Hashem chose to forgive us that original Yom Kippur after the sin of the golden calf. And that created a happiness in the relationship and a forever opportunity to have forgiveness on the day 
of the second luchos. So in other words, the fact that Hashem committed to us to work with us and to help us to shift and grow, despite having the sin of the golden calf, is what creates Yom Kippur. So Hashem's positive attitude, so to speak, about the Jewish people, Hashem's willingness to work with us despite our failings is what created Yom Kippur, not the other way around. And that tells us everything that we need to know about approach and attitude in a relationship. It's not that, do you have a good relationship? Do you have enough of a good relationship in order to work things out? It's do you have the right approach and attitude that will cause you to work things up. But moreover, that's really what this whole Midrashim Gemara is telling us. It's not that these were happy days because the Jewish people found Shaduchim on these days. It's because these were happy days that the Jewish people were able to find Shaduchim on these days. And that's everything that's wrong with any relationship in the Jewish people. It's not the quality of people involved. It's the quality of the attitudes and the willingness to shift of the people involved. And what we most need to know about Shaduchim and about our relationships with our spouses or relationships that we want to create is that the Jewish people have the right qualities. We have the right lineage, which is exactly what the Midrash tells us. Go to the fields, lift up your eyes and look not at the beauty, but at the lineage, at the characteristics of the Jewish people. Then, if you recognize the happiness of the day, which we have all these reasons why Tuba Av was a happy day, which we're going to discuss further uh, shortly, that's what creates the possibility of cultivating healthy new relationships. It's not that you find the relationship and then you get happy. It's you get happy and then you find the relationship. And then each person has a willingness to work on themselves and on the relationship. That's what is the ongoing destiny of the Jewish people. And that's why Tuba Av and Yom Kippur. Tuba Av and Yom Kippur compare not because they are similar in terms of the forgiveness of Hashem. They are similar in the fact that these are days in which the Jewish people felt a tremendous sense of happiness. And let's explain that now. After having committed the sin of the golden calf, it would be only logical to think that the Jewish people are irredeemable. They themselves stood at Mount Sinai. They heard Hashem saying, you shall not have other gods. And 40 days later, they constructed a golden image, they bowed to it, and they served it. So it would make complete sense for the Jewish people to imagine that there would be no hope for them. But it turns out that Hashem forgave them and not only did Hashem forgive them and not destroy them, but Hashem rebuilt the luchos that Moshe broke by Hashem himself carving the second set of tablets and giving it as a sign of Hashem's ongoing commitment and bond of marriage between Hashem and the Jewish people. That gave the Jewish people a tremendous vote of confidence and a tremendous reason to be happy despite their own failings. It's that positivity that promised the future of their relationship because it became the source. This day becomes the source where all forgiveness happens because that's part of the 
uh, my father always uh, teaches that what's absolutely critical for a relationship is that there should be a mechanism of forgiveness. So you can't have a committed relationship without a mechanism of forgiveness. And that's represented by Yom Kippur. But what we're suggesting is that it's because of the happiness of that day that then both Hashem and the Jewish people have the right attitude to help the Jewish people to change. That attitude is critical in order for the shifting to happen. There has to be a belief in self. There has to be a positivity about oneself. And the fact that Hashem is giving us that vote of confidence is a further reason to have self-belief in our ability to change. So that same happiness is what happened on Tu Ba'at. After all, the destruction of both Bateh Hamikdash, or let's just go back to the first uh, uh, Tu which is after they realized that the generation of the desert stopped dying, we know there will be tremendous reasons for the Jewish people to believe that, you know what, it's been 38, 30, you know, 39 years, maybe, maybe that's it. Despite the fact that we were told earlier by Moshe Rabbeinu that we're going to go into Eretz Yisrael, this is happening again, again, year after year. You know, maybe this is just going to be the fate forever, and we're never really going to make it into Eretz Yisrael. Maybe Hashem really does give up on us. Those are natural misgivings and pessimism that a person has in any protracted situation of difficulty. But when they realized that, in fact, Hashem did stop the decree against the people that died in the desert, post the destruction of 600,000 tremendous human beings of the generation of the desert, there can still be hope again. And there will be a future of the Jewish people again. That created a tremendous happiness. And it's that happiness that builds the belief in new relationships and breeds the necessary positivity so that two people can cultivate an optimistic, happy, and healthy relationship. Now, one of the amazing things about the lifting of the ban of intertribal marriages is a concept that I think, you know, also is very, very important to apply here. And that is, it comes out that the laws of inheritance of the land of Israel were really only for the original generation. That means to say that originally the tribes of the Jewish people inherited different tracts of land with different qualities, etc. But because of the fact that it is possible for a woman to inherit from her tribal father and for that woman to eventually marry into a different tribe, it comes out that the Jewish people can completely revamp and remix the boundaries of inheritance of the land of Israel. Now, I don't know how often that happened, but the bottom line is that as much as it's important to appreciate the distinct qualities of every tribe, we also have to appreciate the ability for the Jewish people to resynchronize and become one people again probably no better time in recent history that we need that lesson uh, than today with all of the difficulties that we are experiencing as a people in getting along with each other today in Eretz Israel. That means that there was a real dampening of Jewish um, belief in one another when the tribes were not allowed to intermarry. It became a nation that's somewhat divided. 
But as soon as that ban is lifted, regardless of how often it would practically occur, it means that we should recognize the truth that really we can intermarry from one tribe to the next because we really do have the essential qualities of Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. And there is a reason to remix, so to speak, whenever those shaduchim happen. And that was a tremendous reason for happiness, to remind us of our oneness. And when we can really be reminded of our oneness, that's a tremendous reason for celebration. And it is that happiness that will then again build positivity for future intimate and relationships of oneness. So the tochacha that Moshe Rabbeinu is essentially given to the Jewish people is to recognize that what really holds us back from who we are and who we need to be is completely tied in to our attitude of mamrin, of rebelliousness, which is of course linked to arrogance and entitlement versus an attitude of continued learning, which is what Harsinai is all about and an ability to shift. Um, a great lesson uh, that uh, my father has taught is that as the Rambam tells us, uh, Joseph Rackman was reminding me of this today, the Rambam tells us that a healthy marriage is where the wife treats the husband like a king and the husband treats the wife like a queen. But an unhealthy marriage is when the husband treats himself like a king and the wife treats herself like a queen. What that really means, I suggest, is that becoming a king or becoming a queen requires help. As the Torah tells us originally, marriage is ezer kinegdo. We need each party to help the other one become empowered to who they can become. Now that requires a humility and a positivity. Right? These are the greatest problems that we have in relationships is where people stop believing in the goodness of themselves or of the other or both. That's where relationships get stuck. But if we would really be willing ourselves to shift, to learn from the other one, to empower the other one and have the patience for the other one to shift, that's how we can have successful, successful shidduchim. So what I think is most important when we talk about navigating shidduchim, we have to, first of all, remember that we're talking about it from two points of view. One is in the creating of new relationships and the other one is in the ongoing development of the existing relationships, right? Shaduchim is not only people who will get married, Shaduchim is the people who got married, right? Both of these require positivity and willingness to shift in order for them to work well, which of course is the opposite of rebelliousness and arrogance and entitlement. It has to be an attitude of helping and an attitude of, of empowerment. This is what we can learn from a sentence which Moshe Rabbeinu is in, in this concluding paragraph. The Moshe Rabbeinu's Tochacha, we have kind of an unbelievable statement. After Moshe Rabbeinu says, look, what does Hashem want from you? All he wants from you is to have awe of Hashem, which is of course not a small thing, but it means it is everything. Then the Torah goes on to Hashem, only your forefathers, Hashem desired to love them. And he chose in their children after them from all the other nations. And you need to circumcise the foreskin of your hearts and not stiffen your necks any further. Because Hashem is the God of all gods, the master of all masters, awesome, mighty, you know, big. And he doesn't uh, show favoritism or take bribes. 
And here's the sentence, Hashem does the justice of the orphan and the widow, and he loves the convert to give to him bread and clothing. And Rashi says, by the way, giving bread and clothing to the convert is no small thing. That is what Yaakov Avinu davens for when he's you know, en route to Lavan's house, Hashem should give me bread and clothing. That's not a small thing. That's a big thing because that's what Yaakov davened for. Well, you know, listen, Hashem can do that and tons more. Why are we focusing on the bread and clothing? And my answer is because bread and clothing are the basic components to help a person live another day. To give someone bread and clothing doesn't mean to take care of them on an ongoing basis. It means to provide for them while they are struggling. That's why shelter is not mentioned. You know, a person can exist without shelter for a couple of days, but they can't function like a human being without bread and clothing. And so therefore the Torah is telling us that what Hashem does is guaranteed to take care of us in the most basic ways until we can provide for ourselves and become the people who we need to become. That's all Yaakov Avinu was asking for. But that is a huge thing, that to care about someone to that extent that no matter what, you are committed to helping them with their, with their food and clothing so that they can continue on and find themselves and become the people that they need to become, that's a tremendous aspect of commitment that Hashem is promising. And that's why Moshe Rabbeinu is bringing it up here, because that is the love that Hashem has for all the people for whom Hashem cares. And of course, converts are special, and Hashem has that specific love for all converts, and that's a guarantee in the Torah. But the point is, for our purposes, that that's the way we need to approach a relationship, is to help everyone to have what they need to get through their difficulties, right? All the people to whom we're committed so that they can fight to become the person that they need to become. And that's why it's part of this paragraph, which ultimately concludes with the fact that Hashem is bringing us into Eretz Yisrael and we need to bear all of this in mind. And I also would like to you know, suggest that all of these things that the Torah is talking about over here, about inheriting Eretz Yisrael, doesn't only apply to the Eretz Yisrael of then, it applies to the Eretz Yisrael of now. We need more than ever to be reminded of the positivity that Hashem has towards us. We need to internalize these messages of Tuba Av that remind us of all the different kind of stopping points along the way in our history where we can see clearly Hashem's uh, belief in us, where we were relieved from various destructions. That's why it's specifically at this time of year, after Tisha B'Av, after Shabbos Nachamu, that we can experience the fact that Hashem really does have positivity towards us. We need to use that to get rid of our negative self-doubts, to get rid of our, you know, God forbid, doubts about does Hashem still want us? Will Hashem, you know, provide for us in the future? Is Hashem still devoted to us? Are we still in an unbreakable bond of relationship with Hashem? The answer, of course, is yes. Not the God forbid, think the nonsense of the Christians and other religions that chose to make pretend that Hashem has rejected the Jewish people. Tuba Av reminds us of the tremendous positivity that Hashem has towards us, and that that is the basis of building our relationship with Him and our relationships with each other. So the main navigation that we need for prospective shidduchim, as well as 
ongoing, currently existing relationships of marriage is that positivity and a willingness to shift is exactly what will create the right relationship. Whereas being stiff-necked and stubborn and unwilling to change is exactly what will cause future and further destruction or deterioration, God forbid. And so that is true about all um, shidduchim that we're trying to help. And it could be that one of the reasons that people like uh, to be involved in helping people with shidduchim is because it reminds us of these facts. People need to help one another. Uh, people need to try to help each other help each other, right? By helping two people get married, you're helping those two people to help one another. And also it's a reminder of how we can help ourselves in our relationship with Hashem and Hashem, how Hashem is working with us and trying to help us in our relationship with him. Questions or comments? Uh, yes, um, let's see, we have Sylvia, can you unmute? Oh, and also Chava, so first Sylvia and then Chava. How does the intermarriage of the different Shvatim correspond to everything reverting back to everybody um, at the, on the Yovel year? Does that have any, um, 50 years, there's a Yovel year and everything uh, reverts okay. back? Okay, so, uh, so I'm explain some of the technical details of that. So the Yovel year where everything returns to the tribal owners does not apply when the woman inherited from the father and then marries into a different tribe. It will not return to the original uh, tribal ownership. The Yovel year applies when people who sold the land, uh, sold you know, whatever land they sold, it will revert to them in the, in the 50th year. So usually, you know, that would be from the tribe that they inherited from their father. But in this case, if let's say the woman inherited from her father, she takes that property into a relationship with her husband, who's from a different tribe. If they sell that property, it will go back to the tribe of her husband. Okay, thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Yes. Well, Have it. Um, Pligeshet Giva was also 15 and half that they were allowed to marry again, the Binyamin. Yes, yes. That's in the same midrash, and so were the Haruge Beitar. Yes. Okay. okay. Yeah. So both Pilagish uh, Begiva, which was um, a, a story in Prophets that talks about the wicked uh, treatment of guests by the tribe of Binyamin, uh, that the Jewish people actually waged war against Binyamin, and then they outlawed uh, marrying uh, the tribe of Binyamin. Eventually, they were again allowed to remarry one another. Both of the, that and like the daughters of Slavchut speak to the fact that the Jewish people have the essential quality and they really do benefit from intertribal relationships whenever they happen. And that oneness of the Jewish people really speaks to this idea that we come from our forefathers and we do all have these essential qualities and we really can and should work together. Uh, that doesn't mean we should be looking necessarily to marry into a different tribe doesn't mean that we should be looking for that, but it means that when it's appropriate, that it's a good thing as opposed to a bad thing. Mm -hmm. It's actually still a very good thing. And Ruth also went to the field somehow around Tisha B'Av, right? To glean and the story of Boaz. To uh, so it was the harvest time. 
maybe maybe there is some source later you know that it was towards the end of that time um i don't know that i don't know Uh, you'll see in the, God willing, in the transcript, hopefully you'll see some sources to, to look further. Yeah. Okay. Everyone good? Okay. I, I saw my father online here today, so I'm hoping everybody will zoom over to that share. Ari, Ari, Ari posted a question. Ari posted a question. Okay. Uh, give me one second. Uh, yeah. Ari, that's a very good point. Ari's pointing out that, uh, you know, the fact that the Jewish people fell victim to having some sort of a go-between, whatever, however you want to understand the golden calf, but as some sort of uh, negative self-image about themselves that they felt that they needed uh, something in between could also speak to the fact why there was a breakdown in the relationship between us and Hashem, and that in order to overcome that, um, we needed to... Uh, you know, in order to overcome that, then we would need to uh, think more properly about ourselves and Hashem's attitude towards us. Rabbi Fiel, um, there wasn't the destruction of the base of Mikdash, but we still had, you know, the Tisha B'Av of, of, the, of the spies. And... Yeah, but, they did, but the Tisha B'Av, if you look in the Gemara, you'll see that Tisha B'Av is based on the Hurban. There was no fasting or anything like that because of that, because of the spies. Okay, but there is Tuba'av because of that, apparently. Could be, but not. But she was saying, were they leaning on Tishbov? What's Tishbov got to do with Rus? Yeah, no, I think I think maybe having something to do with Tuba, but I don't know. So, well, yeah, I don't know. Um, okay, I think that's it. I think. Oh yeah, I just wanted to mention again for anybody who who missed it. Oh, I was saying there was one more question. Sorry. Ah, great question. Rabbi Yaakov Rosenthal is asking: Is there any point where a negative attitude creates a negative essence. So I, I really didn't go into this point enough. The short answer to that question is no, because we are we have essential characteristics of appropriate uh, development based on the fact of our forefathers, whatever uh, compassion and appropriate shame and um, givingness that we inherited from our forefathers, how that creates us to have the right essence. But for sure, if a person is not uh, working on developing themselves, then it might be pot, might be that currently we can't have a relationship of oneness with such a person uh, until they shift. As as you know, of course, the messages of Korban Tishabov are coming to to explain about our own stiff-necked uh, way and not having a willingness to change. But as far as the essential quality of the Jewish people, I don't believe that there's a time when it becomes part of our um, negative essence. Uh, but yes, it does become harder and harder uh, the more entrenched the person does become in negativity. Uh, but hopefully they can find things in their life to recognize how Hashem has helped them or other people have helped them and learn how to build on positivity from that point. But I don't think that we should ever give up on the essential quality of the Jewish people and say that there is a, there's ever a, a permanent uh, negative essence. But uh, great point. Uh, I just want to mention the next two Wednesdays, we will not be having class. We will resume, God willing, Wednesday, August 23rd. Have a super day, everyone. Please zoom over to my father.